Hey there, welcome back to Great Quarter, guys. This is episode 68 of the show where the lines between freight and finance are none. I'm your host, Andrew Cox, Senior Retail Analyst here at Freight Waves. And this is the one after Seth. Seth Holm is, has left. He is, uh, was my co-host for, for some time. Today, I've got Zach Strickland, the Sultan of Sonar, stepping up to the plate uh, to join for a jam-packed show. We're going to get this going quickly because we've got a busy schedule and a lot for you today. We've got a fantastic guest in the back half of the show. We've got Rick Watson. He is the founder and CEO of RMW Commerce Consulting in New York City. We're going to be talking about the looming battle that is going on or will be going on between UPS and Amazon in the next few years. He has some great insights on that front. But before we do that, let's go ahead and start with our chart of the day. Zach and I each have one for you today. Mine is on lumber prices. This is just something unbelievable. Uh, the lumber futures for delivery later this month have closed to just under $1,600 per thousand foot of board. Uh, that is four times the historical average. The historical average there is the uh, orange line. You can see the previous five-year average just below $400 right now at $1,600. Futures rose. Here you go, Zach. Futures rose by the maximum amount in nine of April's 21 trading days. Unbelievable. Uh, last April, 40% of the North American sawmill capacity was cut, was put offline, and demand has been ridiculous with housing starts and with people doing renovations. Uh, it, we have an incredible um, just supply and, and demand imbalance right now in the lumber market. And this is spilling over to many of the different commodities, which we'll talk a little bit about during uh, our ISM PMI segment. But Zach, I will pass it to you for your chart of the day. Yeah, I went ahead and picked out the ACT Research three, four, and five-year uh, used truck price. Now, I picked this one because it kind of flows with what we're talking about in terms of commodity pricing. Like, if you look at these used truck prices, uh, we're seeing supply chain bottlenecks throughout the space in terms of just getting the raw materials where they need to be. Lumber, of course, uh, also has a direct-to-consumer effect. <clears throat> But upstream in the middleman, uh, a lot of the carriers are having trouble sourcing some of their, uh, their trucks and their equipment. You know, we have the semiconductor shortage, but we also have a lot of other raw materials in that process that you're not going to be able to rely on those orders getting, getting to the uh, carriers in a timely manner, uh, you know, especially in their normal six to nine month cycle. So you see this in all three prices. Now, not, all not every time do all three of these prices move in sync like you're seeing right now. And you can see that they bottomed out uh, last year and have been rising a, a lot more quickly here over the last couple of months. The three-year number tends to be the one that moves a little bit more independently of the four and five, depending on the models and, and certain kind of issues and nuances in there. But uh, when the four and five start moving higher, like we're seeing right now, that means that you can anticipate continued uh, issues, uh, especially in the, uh, the fleet equipment market. All right. Well, thank you, Zach. We'll definitely be watching that. We've got a lot going on in the new truck orders and used truck prices, a lot uh, to be watching for on the capacity front. All right, let's do buy or sell. This is a new segment we brought in last week. I've got some statements or some rumors that I've heard. And Zach, you'll tell me whether you're buying or you're selling this idea. So a FreightWave's favorite, Amit Maratra of Deutsche Bank, he believes the powerful surge in demand and pricing now coursing through transport modes will last through the rest of 2021, continue through all of 2022, and could extend well into 2023. Zach, you buying or selling? So I'm buying the first half of this and I'm selling the back half of it okay. because I think everybody's kind of, I mean, again, I'm, I'm probably taking the easy way out here. Uh, you know, anytime you're doing a long-term kind of prediction, you're, there's a lot of variance that can happen. Uh, the front end of this, very sound. There's a lot of data supporting that we're going to see continued growth in the space, freight demand, inventory levels, et cetera. Uh, what is uh, a little bit concerning to me is the quickness with which the economy rebounded. Anytime I see a large spike, 
I expect some sort of equal or opposite reaction. You know, it's basic physics here. Uh, this is kind of an overheated space that we're in right now. It feels like a bubble in a lot of different spaces. So to have a long-term growth cycle, I think you need to have a little bit more stable, uh, you know, pattern on it. I can't disagree. I'm going to withhold judgment on buy or mm -hmm. sell because Amit is going to come on Great Quarter. Mm -hmm. Guys, next Tuesday, we're actually going to do it at 2 p.m. Eastern. J.P. Hampstead, Director of Passport Research, is also going to be with me. And we're going to dispel this idea uh, in depth. But he's pointing to the industrial recovery. He thinks there's still pent-up consumer demand. I'm going to press him on that one. Uh, housing strength, and there's still very depleted inventories. And he also pointed to the infrastructure bill, which I think this could be a huge boon for the trucking industry if it were to get passed. Uh, but we, we really need to move on because I've got a lot back for today. So one more buy or sell. Uh, Self-driving truck software startup Plus is reportedly in talks to merge with the same investor group that brought public electric vehicle startup Canoe, as well as bus maker Bluebird and flatbed logistics specialist Adasky. You buying or selling? Yeah, I'll buy this. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. If you look at a lot of other companies that are kind of doing the same thing and developing this autonomous technology, uh, they're, par they're partnering with equipment makers and other technology providers. Uh, and this is a good, easy way for them to kind of have some, uh, you know, share ideas. You're wanting to grow fast because there's a lot of competition right now on the road for autonomous mm -hmm. vehicles, uh, especially in the level four space, which they are. Um, you know, and then you have, you know, somebody that you can use like Desecchi who can help you kind of test this out. Uh, and it, they operate in a very open space market in terms of the Texas oil fields and whatnot. So short haul, uh, places that you can test this out. So there's a lot of potential here. I would buy this uh, for sure. Nice. I'm buying this as well. I haven't read the S1 yet, uh, but when it comes out, I'll likely be buying the stock. Uh, I think this is a huge market. I like the kind of asset light nature of their business. And again, as you said, this is a partnership game. Mm -hmm. They're partnered with four of the big, uh, four of the 10 biggest truck makers in the world. They've also got ties in China and the US, which I like kind of like too simple as well. I'm buying this one. I hope they do come public. I'll probably buy some of the stock. All right, let's get on to you care or nah, and let's run through these three before we bring Rick on. First one is we've got another Mageddon, this one pool Mageddon. There is a major chlorine shortage that is set to spoil the summertime fun in the swimming pool. Experts are calling it the worst chlorine shortage the country has ever seen. You care or not? I absolutely care because it's summertime and it's the pools. Uh, they did say that it was really low, isolated into actual, uh, states like Florida, Texas, and some of the northern tier states where we saw this explosion of pool growth uh, thanks to the pandemic. Uh, so, I, I mean, I do care, but I don't care because it doesn't target our state. Yes. Uh, here in Tennessee. So uh, I think it is a big deal to see a lot of this uh, expensive chlorine because the pools, if they get shut down and everybody's got this pent up demand for getting outside, it's a big deal. And that will impact me when I go to Florida later in the year. That's right. Uh, so yeah, I do care on this one. I'm going to say I don't care. The only mm -hmm. thing I do care about this one is the potential. Uh, they through some very scary things in the article that we were reading that, uh, you know, chlorine helps fight against mosquitoes. I hate mosquitoes. They help right. fight against the brain-eating amoeba. Didn't even know that was a thing. Uh, so there, there are a lot of uh, diseases and things that I want to avoid. So I hope they get this chlorine um, shortage fixed. But in all, I don't have a pool. I don't spend much time in public pools. So I, I don't, it doesn't affect me that much. So I'm right. going to pass on Karen on this one. But all right, this next one I do care about. I'll foreshadow that the ISM PMI tumbled in April down from 64.7 to 60.7%, missing expectations of 65. Zach, you care or no? Yeah, I, I don't really care in the way that it's showing me that we're retracting. 
Uh, I don't think that that's a real sign that the industrial side is going to start slowing anytime soon. If you look at some of the underlying values here, a lot of the retraction is coming from supply chain problems. So they're not able to get uh, some of the deliveries uh, on time and they're having trouble hiring people, which is a, con a continued problem. So, uh, you know, also we're still expanding, even with all these trouble. We're still expanding. The industrial economy is still on pace, and it's a nice, stable growth at this point in time. Uh, so I don't care at the moment. Uh, but And certainly, as we move on throughout the year, we're going to see some of these pressures ease. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think there's still a lot of room for growth here. So just because we're having a little bit of a hiccup right now, I, I don't think it's a long-term concern. I am with you. I do not care about this one yet. I'd say mm -hmm. if we see a few months of this in, in, uh, in, in, in a row consecutively, mm -hmm. and we have the same fears of price inputs and difficulty hiring. I think that would be a trend to watch. But right now, as you said, demand is still expanding, although at a lower pace than it was last month. And something to note is that the, you know, the panel um, sentiment uh, comments that are made at the end of the survey, those are more positive than they were right. last month, even though that the uh, even though the, the number came down. So no, I don't care about this one yet. I'm with you. I think we've got good growth ahead of us. The, the inflation is something that uh, it should be monitored. It's not, consumers aren't seeing it yet in most of these commodity prices, except for lumber. I don't know if, uh, if you guys have seen the price of plywood at Home Depot right now. It's definitely <laughs> translating consumers. The other ones haven't yet, but likely will at some point. All right, I know you're excited for this last one. Let's, let's spend a couple minutes here. Uh, Robinhood versus Warren Buffett at Berkshire's annual shareholder meeting. Buffett and Charlie Munger spent some time criticizing Robinhood. Uh, Buffett said that Robinhood became a significant part of the casino aspect of the casino group that has joined the stock market in the past year and a half or so. And Robinhood clapped back online saying that if the last year has taught us anything, it is that people are tired of the Warren Buffetts and Charlie Mungers of the world acting like they are the only oracles of investing. Zach, you care or not? I absolutely care. I got I to gotta say that Warren Buffett is a personal idol of mine uh, in general. So I grew up in finance uh, and reading all his books and value investing. And this one kind of disappoints me coming from him. Uh, I understand why he said it. Uh, you know, he's kind of embedded and ingrained in the high, high finance industry at, at this point. And his whole, uh, you know, methodology is preaching value investing. And this to me is extremely uh, you know, this helps the get, get back to the roots of value investing, which we the financial markets have been fundamentally separated from for a, over a decade now. Uh, when you're talking about quantitative and analytics, and uh, some of these hedge fund managers controlling a lot of the market. If you look at some of these stock prices, they do not at all line up. Uh, with the internal intrinsic valuations of a lot of these companies anymore, and it doesn't make any sense. So, you know, if anything, opening it back up to the public and to a, a wider range of investors uh, will only help kind of move the market back to a value investing standpoint, which is honestly, in my opinion, the exact right way to, uh, to view stocks. And also, Warren Buffett's been preaching this in his entire life. I, uh, I kind of care. I kind of don't care. I'm kind of mm -hmm. between here. I've, I think if I would care more if Buffett and Munger had a better, um, a, a better record in the last 20 years of investing. I feel like the market has, I won't say it's passed them by by any means because they're still very successful. They make lots of money. But I mean, other than Apple, they've kind of missed a lot of the technology stocks. They've missed most of the last 20 years of huge growth companies. So, I mean, who's to say that they really are? You know, I'm kind of with Robinhood on that. They're not the only oracles to investing anymore. And I, here I am, a Robinhood user, have mm -hmm. been for years. Uh, I'm with Robinhood on this one. And, uh, you know, sad to say, Buffett and Munger are getting old. Uh, <laughs> and there's going to be a generation of millions of other people that, uh, millions of other investors that I hope will kids on Robin Hood like me that will understand who Warren Buffett is and not remember him only for his fight and, you know, kind of criticizing young yeah. people for getting into gambling. Or, well, also, you, know, you just made, you kind of made uh, the point 
that you know they haven't had a lot of success lately using this you know strategy because it's been so separated and unpredictable. True. So True. <laughs> fair point. All right, let me thank our sponsors for a moment. DDC FPO. This episode is brought to you by DDC FPO. DDC is a business process outsourcing provider that specializes in freight. Perhaps best known for freight billing, DDC recently launched IT outsourcing to help supply chain stakeholders hit development milestones without risking financial performance. Learn more at ddcfpo.com. All right, let's bring on Mr. Rick Watson. Rick, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Uh, good to be back. Rick, before we get into uh, UPS versus Amazon, you got any thoughts on uh, Buffett versus Robinhood? <laughs> Uh, I, I am, uh, I'm on the side of Buffett in this case. Okay. I think the big thing is these Robinhood investors feel like they're playing a game. That's not what value investing is all about, following the trends and, and being on Reddit message boards. <laughs> well, that's hey. fair enough. Yeah, I'm definitely with yeah. that. Uh, I, I would just, my, my only thing before we get into the, the conversation is I, I hope, I don't have any data on this, but I would hope that, that there are a substantial majority of people that are not on the Discord uh, channels, you know, trading, <laughs> trading whatever ideas they think they have. And there are hopefully people like me that are buying good American companies and holding them for long term. I, yeah. I hope that. Yeah, I, I think too, like, you know, yeah, I think here initially they're getting a lot of press uh, for some of these message board trading uh, apps, but I, I don't think that that's a long-term uh, situation with the Robinhood Because these people are going to get burnt. Yeah. They will get burnt and yeah. they will get uh, burned out of the market. But all right, Rick, <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about what we're here to talk about. UPS and Amazon, what did you make of each company's earnings? Yeah, I thought, um, you know, the couple of things, I think both companies had good earnings overall. Amazon, I think the biggest two stories are the growth of advertising and the growth of AWS on Amazon. Advertising had about a 70 to 80 percent uh, year over year growth, um, which is obviously fueled by the pandemic and the rise of e-commerce. So that's that's a huge high margin business for Amazon. Uh, and then on, on the UPS side, um, they're continuing to expand with small and medium businesses. That's sort of the engine that's powering them right now as the B2B business is sort of flat um, to you know, maybe slightly up. Uh, and their margin and the revenue per unit is up slight, up, you know, at least 10% on, on the SMB segment. That's really popular. Like all these small and medium shippers across the U.S. are, I think, powering their growth. Um, so that's the big high level. And obviously, Amazon is investing hugely in logistics, which I'm sure we'll get to that in a second. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, what what exactly do you see that a lot of people aren't seeing on this side of things? Like, do you see any kind of I, hidden gems here? Like, I, I think the biggest thing is in a couple of years, Amazon's going to be a major shipper. It's just inevitable. Um, if you look at the entire capital expenditures of of UPS in one year, it's four billion dollars. And it's flat to slightly down year over year going into this year. So they're very like very much an organization that's optimizing cash. They're not trying to overinvest for capacity in the future. They're not trying to bet the farm on any one thing. Meanwhile, on the other hand, Amazon as a company invests $40 billion a year in capital expenditures to invest in the future in innovation. Over half of that is for what? Logistics. Logistics. <laughs> $25 billion versus $4 billion. These companies are going to compete one day, and it's going to be sooner than we think. Well, let's talk about it. So, uh, you know, I know you probably don't have an exact estimate, but, you know, UPS, 13% uh, of their revenue comes from Amazon as of Q3 last year. I don't know the most recent quarter, but 
it's a big part of their business. And I think that we're not so far away from the day that Amazon could flip that switch and be able to take over pretty much all of the operations that they give to UPS. So, you know, how far do you expect that day to come? And how do you expect that transition to happen? They can't just flip the switch, right? It seems like uh, ethically there would be some problems there. Yeah, I, I think the short answer is like, just like everything else, Amazon is very surgical in their position about what routes they take on. And so I think it will start route by route. Um, and then picking off the most profitable UPS routes. And so I think that's that's one side of it. Second is Amazon has already started this journey in other countries. So they've, they've set up as an independent shipper for small and medium businesses in the UK. Uh, and that was some, something that went live last year. They had a trial on this in California about two years ago that they shuttered during the pandemic. So I think you, you might see them later this year start to open that up again. Um, but for sure by next year, if Amazon is not open as an independent shipper for at least some segment of the commercial market, I would be shocked. So Rick, let me ask you this. So, you know, Amazon obviously has a record of kind of removing the intermediary and taking it on, you know, all their operation on themselves. Do you see this as kind of like, you know, some sort of major fallout if they start kind of taking over these lanes, uh, you know, and they rely heavily on UPS and UPS is really you know, been a supportive of them of this yeah. after investing in all this infrastructure that helps support the growth in Amazon's network. And then for Amazon potentially to come along and kind of rip that out from under them, do you see any, uh, you know, rocky road here for this relationship? Um, you know, look, I, I think in the short term, both companies need to play nice. Uh, UPS can't afford not to have Amazon as a customer and Amazon won't be bad mouthing UPS. UPS has very, like, like literally they have the most reliable ground network in the country, you know, bar none, you know, except for now Amazon coming up. But, um, and so Amazon doesn't have a lot of alternatives either to the extent that they're not ready to cover all these routes. So in the short term, I think in the next two years, these companies still need each other. But after that, I think the gloves are going to come off. Yeah, you're definitely right about them not having much options. I mean, given the relationship with FedEx fell yeah. out, uh, you know, about 18 months ago or two years ago. Rick, talk to me about uh, the, the UPS investments, because I, I think that you believe that these investments aren't so much trying to better the true service or adding capacity to the network, but rather focusing on kind of back end things to help them be more efficient. Yeah, there, there was a, such an interesting part of an earnings call two weeks back when uh, the UPS CEO says, you know, we're really focused on improving the customer value chain. And the two examples that she gave were so fascinating to me. The first example was, how can we quote prices to our customers faster? Meaning, like, how can we make our sales rep more efficient? and reduce their time to sign new business. And then second is, she talked about a revamp of the UPS billing center. I mean, which is another way, like how does UPS get paid faster by shippers? I mean, what does that have to do with anything in their network about how buyers get tracking numbers faster, about how their tracking information is more reliable or more detailed? It's just about cash flow. That's it. And, and increasing their margin a little bit. I mean, imagine this announcement by Amazon saying, like, we're really trying to make our customer experience better. Uh, and so we're going to start charging you half a percent more on, you know, on your rates. Amazon is about usually giving stuff away. Like, how, how much do you get in a prime benefit now? Like, every year they keep adding more stuff to it. Yeah, I think that's interesting. The uh, you know what you point out there is kind of you know kind of old school versus new school uh, <laughs> differences, especially since Amazon. I mean, even though they are kind of a veteran, uh, they're new to the industry. They're new to all sorts of uh, things. They're very innovative uh, in the way that they approach uh, the transportation space for sure. So, what kind of things do you think? You know, do you think UPS? 
uh, you know, does have a chance here in terms of like realizing, okay, we do need to invest in other ways around, uh, you know, kind of developing our logistics networks to make us a stronger co co competitor potentially to Amazon in the future? Do you think they even realize that at this point? Or do you get the sense that uh, they kind of are just going along kind of like, uh, you know, status quo, like a, like a normal carrier, incumbent carrier would uh, moving forward? I, I, I think they're, they're playing in the games that they know. I think for UPS to win, they need to be in markets that Amazon is not in. Because in the, Amazon, in the markets that they're competing with Amazon, Amazon is not a traditional carrier. There is no carrier that looks like Amazon because they have perfect information about the customer and the products trans and transported. They have the payment and billing relationship with those end consumers. None of the shippers have anything like that. And so the analytics and data and predictive capability for what you know Amazon could build a perfect network for their customers. None of these shippers are even in the same ballpark with having that kind of capability. Hey, Rick, um, I wanted to touch on something. You said markets that Amazon is not in. And I wanted to say that, you know, they've got 500 delivery stations now. I think they're going to have like 1,500 yeah. in the next couple of years. Like, what market is Amazon not going to be in? You know, I, I think they better, the short answer is you probably need to get there sooner. So I think B2B, so like, just like consumer e-commerce in the past 20 years has over, overgone the, the huge revolution, the next revolution is ethics and B2B. And I think hopefully that those, you need to become more digitized as an industry. And so you have lots of dusty old industries from healthcare to, um, you know, all, all sorts of ones that are really you know, like industrial equipment and, um, you know, CPG, even in, in, to some extent, how they're doing business, it, they just don't have a direct to consumer mindset. And so that supply chain is going to digitize much like the consumer, you know, traditional retail e-commerce supply chain chain is digitized and it's not going to be small parcel format but the carriers need to get ahead of that before amazon you know goes in from like their amazon business segment and then starts to drive drive into those um you know those, those industries so do you see a way like where you know the carriers and amazon coexist kind of peacefully in the future or do you think this is really just an inevitability that amazon's going to eventually just kind of take over as much of this e-commerce space uh, logistically as possible? I think you have, it's an interesting question. Um, I think takeover, uh, logistics is a market where scale wins mm -hmm. and there can only be, I mean, traditionally the small parcel market in the U.S. has been USPS, you know, for all the, all the light and small parcel volume, UPS and then FedEx, kind of in like orders of magnitude. And number one has, you know, whatever, 50 60%. Number two has 20 30%. Number three has 10 to 15%. Right. I mean, that's just true in the industry for 25 years. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And to the extent that Amazon goes out to, for instance, Amazon is already covering, what, 60 70 I don't know, 80% of their own volume now. If they go out to the next tier of customers that are not in fulfilled by Amazon facilities and saying, like, you know what? Your service levels need to be 99.9%. .9%. What carrier is going to keep up with that? Amazon is setting the rules and offering the, com the competitor. Right. So yeah. where are you going to go? I mean, we're not, we won't talk about monopoly and competition and those sorts of things. Uh, it seems a little unfair, but that's, that's the America we're living in right now. 
Yeah, it reminds me a lot like of how Apple approaches their ecosystem. They present it as a choice, but the it's a lose-lose for who's ever trying to make the choice. <laughs> and it seems like Amazon is kind of in this surgical way, I think that's the best way to put it, that kind of presenting the same options. Right. Yeah, it's like it's a heads I win, tails you lose. Um, <laughs> if you're going to win this route, it's going to be my least profitable route. And that's sort of where where you're going to bid. And I'm going to keep bidding it to other people you know, in the network so that I can drive your prices down even if you win it. Yeah, so do you see like, you know, Amazon kind of controls the e-commerce game at this point in time. Do you see anybody else as a potential kind of, you know, threat to their taking some of their market share or maybe even developing some sort of logistics uh, situation that that's going to improve it all? Yeah. <laughs> I think that, I think there there are a couple of options. I think the only two options are really Target, Target and Walmart. Mm -hmm. I think Target by definition is not going to have I mean Walmart is there's no one going to encroach on Walmart volume and scale. Um, but I think from a consumer experience point of view, Target has done a lot of things right in the last seven or eight years to push fulfillment from their stores and to create a really great consumer experience that is almost the opposite of Amazon's model from working from big distribution centers that are scattered everywhere to the store, like small and medium store model and fulfilling out of stores. Um, I think if you go into an industry by industry segment, so for instance, grocery, if you talk about something like Instacart is one model where they're trying to aggregate all the all the supermarkets in the world through one portal. GoPuff, for instance, has a completely different model that started on the, on the college market where they're trying to do micro-fulfillment near the cities, but they want to be a vertically integrated retailer. They want to own the inventory, you know, much like, um, much like a brand would if they were manufacturing. Um, but they want to be a one-stop shop. Rick, I, I, I agree with you on Target. I was hoping you'd bring up Shopify. I, I would like to hear your thoughts on you know, that conglomerate being a potential, uh, a potential battle. And then I wanted to ask your thoughts on the Target Sortation Center. I'm sure you've heard the Sortation Center that opened outside of Minneapolis. They're now going to have uh, ship drivers testing out, having ship drivers delivering boxed orders, e-commerce orders from the Sortation Center, not only delivering bagged groceries. I wanted to know if you had any thoughts on, uh, on that trial. Yeah, I, I, I think Target is very, very good at innovation. And I think their management team is extremely, still to this day, underappreciated in the industry and in the way that they have taken these tests. They have specific financial targets and customer service metrics that they're looking for in these tests. They expand them to new cities and then they keep going. There are very few companies that have this kind of level of multi-year patient innovation that Target has. People forget in 2013, Target had zero parcels shipping from stores, zero parcels. Now they have 95 plus percent of all parcels touch in some way their store infrastructure. So I think Target is, I, I'm very bullish on whatever Target is testing. You, you can almost like put a name on it um, just because their executive team is that good and patient and they'll throw it out if it's not working. On Shopify, I think it's, um, I think it's fascinating what they're doing. They're a powerhouse. They're growing. Um, I think they do have um, some challenges, particularly in their Shopify Plus market. Um, it's a hard market to to satisfy, just because there's so many things that larger merchants need. Um, it's easier to serve the smaller merchants that are just looking for something simple in one box. And so, I think that is really um, the fact that Shopify Plus isn't growing faster is probably the only thing I would watch in the next uh, year or two. Okay, what else uh, I got about? You know, 45 seconds here, Rick, before we got to wrap it up. What else are you looking for in the next year? Not only UPS versus Amazon, but, uh, you know, in e-commerce in general. Yeah, I, I think Shopify fulfillment is another another thing. You know, 
especially since we're on freight waves, you know, um, Shopify has invested in their own fulfillment network and Six River Robotics. Uh, I have not seen anything interesting out of that group yet. Mm. Uh, and, I, and I keep waiting, and they've changed leadership at least once that I know about. And now the Shopify exec team has turned over like half of its executives. Uh, and so the fact is, I don't know any large to medium, medium to large merchants that are seriously considering Shopify fulfillment network over any of the options like flex or deliver like you know 3pl center like pick a pick a logistics provider out there for 3pl or freight forwarding or or anything shopify is not really in that mix you Mm -hmm. know for any kind of medium high volume scenario all right rick thank you so much man i will uh definitely be reaching out we'll have you back on sometime soon thanks for your time all right thanks a lot guys all right see you God, interesting stuff. I like Rick yeah. a lot. Uh, he's a, a very bright guy. One of the best consultants I think you can find around. I love having him on. Had him on uh, Point of Sale, one of the early episodes. Yeah. Talked about f- different e-commerce fulfillment strategies. He's, he's brilliant. All right, but that is pretty much all we've had for today. It's been a very busy show, but it's been fun. Thank you, Zach, so much for taking the time. And thanks again to Rick. We will be back next week. As I said, I've got JP Hampstead, the director of Passport Research, on with me. And also, he's our local hit, po- hit piece extraordinaire. He'll be, yeah, he'll, right. be on, uh, he'll be on with Amit Maratra <laughs> from Deutsche Bank. He is probably the most bullish uh, equity analyst on the transportation space right now. Hopefully, JP can bring some bearish thoughts and Amit will bring the bullish. We'll have a nice debate on broker earnings and uh, the next year. Also, if you want an even deeper dive into Amazon Logistics infrastructure point of sale tomorrow, my other show at 1.30 uh, Eastern, I'm diving deep with Mark Wolfrat, who has, who has more knowledge on the Amazon Logistics infrastructure than anyone outside of Amazon. So join us then. We'll see you again next week. Thank you so much. This has been episode 68.